Where would you go on a third date? A movie? Cocktails? A cosy dinner? If you're Harry and Meghan, you go to Botswana. In one of their African visits, they spend a night in a tent, but it's an expensive tent. It's a £1,800 tent per night. One of those ones, you know it. It was a fairy tale wedding, splashed all over the media, but soon things seem to have taken a turn. Meghan will be sitting on her little throne, bolt upright, Hollywood smile fixed on her face, looking every inch that got a perfect duchess. Harry was just sitting there scowling at the media, just looking daggers at us. A new book, Finding Freedom, serialised in The Times, gives us the Sussexes side of the story. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Meghan and Harry, the inside story. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the royal saga that's continuing to make headlines around the world. In England, forget Brexit. It's Megxit that's sparking a royal family feud tonight in the UK. Prince Harry and Meghan delivering a bombshell announcement today. Here it is. Makes it. Makes it. Makes it. After returning from a long trip to Canada, they say they intend to step back as senior members of the royal family. This is all anyone wants to talk about today. You can Duchess's announcement came as a surprise to many. Tonight, the surprise announcement from Prince Harry and Meghan Markle reportedly blindsiding the Queen. Do you remember where you were when you first heard about Megxit? No, me neither. But I spoke to someone who has a very clear recollection of that moment on January the 8th, 2020. I think one of the problems was Harry and Meghan didn't think it through. They didn't really have a clear idea of what they were going to do and how it was going to work. So when they dropped that bombshell statement, completely blindsiding the palace. When it dropped sometime after six o'clock, I know it was sometime after six o'clock because I was on the tube going home. I'd uh, finished my day's work. Unfortunately, I had you my... thought you had. Yeah, I had my iPad out and I was reading something. And the great thing about my iPad on the tube, it will pick up email flashes. You can't really kind of read the email, 
but it'll flash up on the screen, the, the top line. And I was a couple of stops away from work. That's Valentine Lowe, the royal correspondent for The Times. And this thing flashes up. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex, a personal statement. And as soon as I saw the words personal statement, oh, oh, bloody hell, I just jumped out of the tube. I didn't even know what it was going to say. I just (laughs) jumped out of the tube at the next stop, got on the next tube going back to the office, and I then had to work quite hard for a few hours. How does one become a royal correspondent? I mean, do they sort of test you on the royal family tree, or or how, how does it happen? You're invited for a special meeting in, the, in, in Buckingham Palace and they vet you. No, no, nonsense. You just <laughs> fall into it like any other journalistic job. I think if you can string three words together and sound vaguely presentable, newspapers or media organisations tend to think you're suitable for writing about the royals. Often there's not much to write in terms of facts. You have to be expert at sort of whipping up one and a half facts into a 600-word news story. And uh, I think you'll find quite a few of us are expert at that. (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, what is it like? You do basically spend a lot of time watching one family sort of much more closely than most of us would would watch our own families, I suppose. Is it quite an odd gig? It's a very odd gig because not only are you writing about this one family, but the people you're talking about don't talk to you for the most part. I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, Camilla, God bless her, she does say hello. You and kind of know who you are. And sometimes you, when she's doing something, she's doing something faintly ridiculous, and you're watching her, and she'll catch your eye. And there's just a twinkle in her eye that says, this is absurd, I know it's absurd, you know it's absurd, but, you know, let's go with it. Um, Here we are again. (laughs) Here we are again, very much so. I remember a few years ago, the Queen and Prince Philip, it was just before the Damned Jubilee, they did a tour of Australia and I went there and covered it. So I spent sort of, you know, two weeks or so following the Queen and Philip around Australia. And then we got back to England and the Queen had a reception, which is posh palace speak for a drinks party for the media at Buckingham Palace in advance of the uh, Jubilee. And there was a receiving line, one of these sort of, you know, extraordinary things you'd line up to um, shake hands with the Queen and Philip and there's a flunky who introduces you. So I was, you know, introduced to the Queen, Mr Valentine Lowe of the Times and, you know, shake hands with the Queen and sort of say not much really. Well, you know, how are you doing? Hello. And then you go on to Philip. And Philip's a bit more chatty and uh, introduced to Philip, Mr Valentine Lowe of the Times. And Philip kind of perked up at this and said, oh, he said, well, what do you do for them? I thought, God almighty, man, I've just been following you out of Australia for two weeks, that you remember. <laughs> but clearly not. So with this book, how big a deal is it? There's often sort of a spate of books about the royals. What distinguishes this one? What distinguishes this one is it offers a pretty unfiltered look at what Harry and Meghan were thinking and were feeling when they made their decision to get out of the royal family. It didn't start out like that. It was originally going to be a sort of completely anodyne book, uh, very fluffy, about their romance. So this is, the planning for this was like a, a couple of years ago. And then it got rather overtaken by events. Tell me about this book. What did you make of it? First thing is when I got a proof of it the day before I went to meet uh, Omid and talk to Carolyn, I, I was just astonished by how, how long it was, considering it only really 
depicts four years in the lives of Harry and Meghan. Andrew Billen is a feature writer for The Times, and he met the authors of this book, Omid Scobie and Carolyn Durand. And then I realised it was that long because it was absolutely crammed with detail. You, you know, they say in television documentaries, it's like a fly on the wall. Well, this fly flew everywhere, got into, into every room. <laughs> and as a reporter, I was awestruck by how minutely and obsessively the authors had managed to cover almost every aspect uh, of their lives, down to every designer label and you know, what a bed w- was made out of, you know, what was eaten in the, in the lunch bet- between the Queen and Harry when he finally uh, departed for America. So uh, it was a very assiduous piece of work, a lot of legwork in it. And that level of detail, I mean, is that a hint to just how good their sources might have been? It could go either way, couldn't it? It could be a great bluff if you've got that much detail. Your sources must be absolutely brilliant. You can certainly build up credibility by it. So you've been through it all. What for you were the moments that sort of really struck you? What struck me in a way was the overall impression was that just how much Harry and Meghan hated the men in grey suits, the courtiers from the other households. They loathed them. At one point... Harry is said to have felt that the old guard at Buckingham Palace just didn't like Meghan and were intent on making her life difficult. It's a pretty extraordinary claim, that. For us, this is an entirely new world, but this is very much a world that you are always dabbling in. So what what are courtiers like? What exactly do they do? And are they sort of shady men in grey who are there to make life difficult? (laughs) They're there to make the machine run. But there is an element of you look after your household. If you work for William, that's the person whose interests you're promoting and that's the patch you're going to defend. And the same with all of them. Uh, But they're meant to cooperate. And look, they're professional people. I mean, a lot of them come from, for instance, the Foreign Office or whatever. But there can be a bit of infighting that goes on. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So courtiers are members of the royal staff and meddling is part of the job description. When Harry and Meghan went off to Canada in November of last year, they'd had enough. They really just wanted to get away. They didn't want to be anywhere around the family at Christmas. They wanted to go away. They wanted to think. They were already talking about binning the whole thing or at least changing the way they worked. They go off to Canada. They decide, OK, we're going to stop doing what we're doing. We're going to get a new model. So Harry speaks to the Queen at some point and says, I'd like to come and see you when I come back. And she says, fine. Enter the courtiers. And then the way the royal family is, you know, once that's happened, it, you and the Queen do not get your diaries out. It's, it's the staff who sort that out. And they couldn't get a meeting. They got back early January and Harry was told he couldn't see the Queen until the end of January. So about three weeks after he got back, give or take. His own grandmother. He felt he was being blocked. Do you know what? I think he probably was being blocked. What I'm fairly sure was going on was, you know, Queen says, yes, happy to see you. Courtiers felt, I think we better sort this out ourselves because they feared Harry might talk the Queen round to something and she'd say yes and they'd be stuck with something which maybe they felt would not be a good plan. They could well be right. So he was very frustrated at this. And on the plane back from Canada, he and Meghan actually toyed with the idea of driving straight from Heathrow to Sandringham, where the Queen was, and dropping in on her practically unannounced. 
it's, which is not the way you do things in the royal family. They do not do unannounced visits. Does that ever happen? No, just not. Anyway, they decided not to, probably wisely. But it's quite something if Prince Harry, knowing how unusual that would be, was willing to go to those lengths. It's a sign of his desperation. The book, which has been serialised in The Times and The Sunday Times, also sets out the breakdown of relations between Harry and William, who up until recently had always seemed so close. We all know it It went wrong when William said to Harry something on the lines of, you know, take it slowly with this girl, whatever. The version in the book, which is, you know, it's a similar story to the one we've heard before, but this is, this, as it were, is Harry and Meghan's version. William said something along the lines of, there's no need to rush things with this girl. You know, take it along as you like. And the phrase, this girl, that rankled with Harry. That Harry saw that as snobbishness. He bristled at that. And obviously felt he was being talked down to by his brother, felt his brother was kind of blocking things. But, you know, people can vary in their interpretation of that. But I think a lot of people will think, well, William was just being a loving older brother, looking out for Harry, just saying, just take your time, don't rush into it. And the idea that the words, this girl, should somehow sort of smack of snobbery is... Well, it's quite an extraordinary thing to think. It's a real insight into their relationship. I was talking to someone the other day about Harry. I thought he knows Harry extremely well. And I said, well, that shows, you know, how sensitive Harry is. And he said, well, yes, exactly. One of the reasons Harry has been such an asset for the royal family is because of his sensitivity. I mean, he's a very kind of sensitive guy. There's a lot of emotional intelligence going on there. That's why he kind of touches people in a way that perhaps... Other members of the royal family don't. But there's another side to that coin, and that's the oversensitivity and things like this. And what, what do we think has caused the rift? Is it just things like that incident with the, you know, asking Prince Harry to, to take it slowly with that girl? I think that incident reflected a wider feeling that Harry had, that basically people were cool towards Meghan. They were not welcoming enough towards Meghan. So... He felt the family was not welcoming enough and the courtiers were positively horrid. There's an interesting passage in the book which describes how Harry and Meghan rent this place in Oxfordshire, this farmhouse, the, the weekend bolt hole. And the book complains on their behalf, as it were, that William and Kate never went to go and stay with them. And it says, the invite was always there. And that just smacked to me of every kind of family row, family rift you've ever heard. The invite was always there. What, yes. what kind of utter nonsense is that? It's no good saying the invite was always there. If you want your brother and his wife to come over for the weekend, say, please, will you come in September? Let's fix a date. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, there has been a lot of speculation about whether, like the Andrew Morton book before it, whether one of the reasons it's it's worth reading is because it might actually be informed by some of the characters themselves. What did you make of that? Well, Omid uh, said to me that this book gets into the minds of Harry and Meghan. And if you think about it, that's a very big claim. And the only way to get anywhere near somebody's mind really is to to talk to them. So we had a very agreeable conversation, Omid and I, in this London park. But about halfway through, I had to ask what I thought everybody especially Times readers would want to know who are going to read the serialisation is, did you actually speak to your subjects? And then the interview all got a bit Jeremy Paxman and I find myself asking the same question three or three or four times. And uh, the answer was, we never claimed to have spoken to them. You know, there are no on-the-record interviews. And I would say, well, were there any off-the-record interviews? And in the end, he said very quietly, no. And then he said, well, you know me. You you know I've got enough experience to have very good sources. The official line is, they didn't speak to Harry and Meghan. What was the impression you got after your Jeremy Paxman grilling? You see, I'm, as an interviewer, I'm very loath not to take people's answers at face value. So I'd really like to believe that they'll completely uh, straightforward with me and they have very good sources, but they weren't actually the, the Sussexes themselves. My hunch is they very likely did at some point sit down and at least discuss a few details. That would That's just my hunch. How much does it show you about the Duchess of Sussex and, and how she's adjusted to her new role? What came across to me is that, you know, when we first saw Meghan, here is this intelligent, articulate, confident, interesting woman with a lot of views about things, a lot of strong views, a lot of initiative. But then when we read the book, she comes across as much more fragile. I think that she couldn't handle the level of interest. She couldn't handle being criticised in the media. Is there a sense that they were briefing against them? There were stories that leaked out. Stories about Meghan did leak out. So in that sense, someone was briefing somewhere. It all started to go wrong about the autumn of 2018. That's when the stories against Meghan started to accumulate. One of the themes about that was how she treated her staff. One of the things that gets levelled at her is, you know, the, the 5am emails to staff. So she's a, an early bird. 
Yeah, she does a year ago, whatever. She couldn't sleep, files off an email. And the book says, well, you know, if it was a male chief executive sending off uh, five e- emails, that would just be mere alpha male behaviour. And whereas, you know, if it's a woman, she's, she's being a bitch. And also, the book raises the question of race, basically says she's kind of being tarred with this brush of being an angry black woman. But, you know, I've heard sufficient tales that, you know, she could be pretty tricky with her staff. She could be a difficult person to work for. There were tears. So I think these stories about her and staff weren't necessarily all made up. Were you hearing from members of staff at the time? I've heard since from people who know, who don't really have an axe grind, that, you know, it could be quite bad. Valentine remembers a royal visit to Fiji back in 2018 when the Sussexes were still very much in the public eye. And the other thing I remember from that tour is there were a couple of welcoming ceremonies in Fiji, two different ones. One when they arrived and then another when they went to a different island and arrived there. So we had to, we and they had to sit through two very long interminable welcome ceremonies, which involved the two of them sitting up on some kind of stage. And it was hilarious to watch them because certainly by the second one, which was after the market incident, Meghan would be sitting on her little throne, bolt upright, Hollywood smile fixed on her face, looking every inch the kind of perfect duchess. Harry was just sitting there scowling at the media. So instead of looking straight ahead, as perhaps he was meant to, he'd be looking off to one side where we all were and just looking daggers at us. He was just furious. And the thing was, Harry, is he can't hide it. What you see is what you get. And if if he's happy, you'll know it. If he's furious, even more so, you'll know it. Harry and Meghan's relationship with the media broke down further with the birth of their baby, Archie, in 2019. Where it started going a bit odd was not telling us who the godparents were. Now, I I think some royal correspondents get a bit pompous about this. They say, we have a right to know. I'm not sure we have a right to know. I think it's a bit ridiculous to try and keep the godparents secret. I mean, what's the poor boy meant to do when he's old? He's meant to sort of keep shtum about how his, how his godmother is or his godfather is. And also, their argument was it was respect for the privacy of these people. Well, come off it. I mean, what's going to happen? You announce who the godparents are and the newspaper is going to do a page on, these are the godparents, here's Harry Blinkington Smythe, godfather, he went to school with Harry. And that's it. It's like, that's over. It's not, it's not like you're going to be trampling all over their lives. It's like, here's a godparent. I mean, I'd struggle to try and remember who Prince George or Princess Charlotte's godparents are. I'd have to look it up. It was their obsessive desire for privacy and to do one over on the media, a score of victory against the media. And where do you think that comes from? Is that from Meghan? You know, is it a Hollywood thing that there's a lot of privacy around children in particular? Or is it from Harry being sort of so, you know, so scarred by his own experience as a young boy? It's, it's, it's Harry, you know, so scarred by experience as a young boy, scarred by what happened to his mother, loathes the media, particularly the tabloids. Megan, she comes along, 
she had a very different relationship with the media when she was an actress in the States. It was all kind of pretty, pretty positive, pretty lovely. It turns a bit negative. She didn't like that. She couldn't really handle it. And they just sort of just developed this utter visceral loathing for the press. Now, what you've got to remember is that William doesn't like the media either. Mm. I mean, certainly the tabloids. He really doesn't. But he's learned how to handle it. He's learned to kind of roll all the punches a bit. He's just learned how to grow up. He doesn't love them any more than Harry, absolutely not. But he's learned how to accommodate. And I think he's happier as a result. One of the people who seems to come out of it, you know, reputation absolutely intact, is the Queen. God bless her, yeah. God bless her. But you described that sort of horrendous incident where, you know, again, the the men in grey, the courtiers are getting in the way and, and making it impossible for... Harry to meet his grandmother for three weeks. But then there is this very touching scene where they do have lunch. Tell us about that. Is it typical of their relationship? He would have lunch with her occasionally when he was at Frogmore Cottage, for instance. It's this dual role that the Queen occupies of being both the grandmother and the, the sort of chairman of the board. So she has to do two things. She loves Harry. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I mean, he's very, he's very lovable in many ways, very, very lovable. And she's extremely fond of him. But what's interesting is that twice in the last few months, she has taken tough decisions. The decisions she takes are all about preserving the institution. Hmm. So with Harry, he wanted this hybrid in-out model. And she said, nope, no can do. And Andrew... When Andrew mucked things up with this awful, awful Newsnight interview, she said quite quickly, Nat, you've got to step down. So, you know, she could be the um, chairman of the board when she needs to be. Do you think there will be any coming back? Someone who absolutely knows told me only yesterday that there is absolutely no chance that they will ever admit, hey, this was a big mistake. That, that is not going to happen. Now, there might at some point be some kind of flexibility about their role, maybe. Wouldn't want to rule that out, but that won't be for quite a long time to come. For Andrew Billen, having tackled Omid Scobie, he tried his luck with the other author of the book, Caroline Durand. And what's Caroline like? Well, I got home after this pleasant encounter in the park to talk to Caroline, and she was very, uh, very serious with me and took exception I thought to when I mentioned the materialism of the couple and especially Megan and she said what did I mean and I said well your book is absolutely studded with brand names designer brand names you know they do live very very privileged lives I mentioned it to Omid as well and I said you know this is not the royal family we know the queen we know keeps her cornflakes in Tupperware boxes and and pulls them up for breakfast and he said well yeah that's what they want us to to think about it you know the fact is they all live very privileged very rich lives they're they're, they're all millionaires and harry and megan are no exception uh, but caroline really didn't like me saying this she i said well come on in one of their african visits they they spend a night in a tent but it's an expensive tent it's it's a 1800 pound tent <laughs> per night one of those one of those um, ones. You know it. You know them very well. <laughs> I don't, but I'm trying to imagine a, no a £1,800 tent. I think each bedroom has a balcony. A, a, a tent? How does that even work? It's the detail you get in Finding Freedom. 
Do you feel more sympathetic to the Sussex perspective, having read the book and having spoken to Omid and Carolyn? Yes, I do, but I didn't really have a dog in the fight anyway. I wasn't particularly partisan on it. I think it's a very difficult institution to live in. And I, I, I kind of think in this story, there are casualties on, on both sides. But I wouldn't be all that interested in having a, any of them round for dinner. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Royal Correspondent for The Times, Valentine Lowe, and feature writer, Andrew Billen. You can read more of Valentine and Andrew's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. Finding Freedom comes out on August the 11th, and it's been serialised in The Times and The Sunday Times over the last week. The producer today was Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or now we're also available on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio in the App Store. From August the 7th, we're starting a special series of podcasts on the killing of C.J. Davis, presented by my colleague, The Times crime correspondent, John Simpson. I can't recommend it enough. C.J. Davis was shot dead in broad daylight on September the 4th, 2017, in Newham, East London. He was 14 years old. The case remains unsolved. I called my child full of beans, and I remember getting a book that actually said that, and I said, this is you to the day, calling you full of beans, because... From he was able to walk or run, he was running. I'm John Simpson, the crime correspondent for The Times. This is a special series looking at what happened that day and in the months leading up to CJ's murder. We'll be trying to find answers. We'll speak to people who have never spoken before. I've heard a hundred million stories from like, the media. About how CJ ended up at the centre of a simmering gang war and what happened that day. And I've seen things online that people have like bragged about shooting him. We'll explore how a young boy obsessed with dancing rapidly slipped from struggling at school into a world of combat knives, body armour, crack cocaine and heroin. And finally, a stolen car and a shotgun. When you have gangs that can make a young black boy feel better about himself than society, we're in trouble. Who killed CJ Davis? You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. And now we're available on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio on your app store.